Hello, and welcome to What Is My Podcast About? It's a podcast where on a fortnightly basis we get together to discuss different topics and try and figure out what we're going to make a podcast about. I'm your host, Peter Akerley, and I'm joined, as always, by Keith Ramsey and Matthew Grace. Hello. Alright, so, uh, before we get too far into this, this was one of our special podcasts where I got to pick a topic... And you you're the birthday boy. Yeah, exactly. I'm the birthday boy. And you guys just have to kind of figure it out based on the clue I gave. And now you have a bit of added clues based on the items that are on our table. I'm going to be honest. I had some level of confidence going into today. And then with what you put down on the table, <laughs> I've lost that confidence. Yes. If, if you guys are curious about what's on the table, uh, we have uh, a sharp kitchen knife that we probably should not be playing with while recording this podcast. We have a couple different like toy figurines. Uh, a glass prism, a Mass Effect comic book, a book which I have taped off the cover of because that might be directly related to the topic of discussion, and some Magic the Gathering cards. <laughs> and a photo of Assassin from Fate Stay Night. Yeah. Oh yeah, so and a photo of Assassin from Fate Stay Night. If you want to see those items for yourself, check out our Instagram. I've got a picture uploaded already where you can guess what the podcast is yeah, about. The first item you put on the table, Deadpool, kind of made me a little more confident. It did. I was more confident when that went down and then other stuff went down. I was like, I don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, do you guys want to share what your thoughts were, perhaps before seeing what's on the table, and if your opinions have changed since things have been added to the well, table? I googled what you said, yeah. and a bunch of uh, ebooks came up. I just looked past those because they didn't really look relevant. I saw a relation to Eye of the Tiger because a line is kind of shared with what you said. Okay. Stocks is praying the night. Yeah. Yep. And also. How I said in the previous episode that I thought I had an idea of what you were going on about, that also popped up as one of the things. Moon Knight. Yeah, I was also like, it's probably Moon Knight. He's probably just using some twisted fucking words of like, yeah, he's because, an angel. An angel to me. And I was really hoping that we were <laughs> yeah. going to be talking about Moon Knight because I want to know more about <laughs> this know, guy. He brings the light like the moon does at night. <laughs> I'm going to be honest, if we were talking about Moon Knight, I would have brought my thousands of Moon Knight comics to put on the table. So as oh. I was saying, like when you put down Deadpool, it's like, oh, we're getting close. He's kind of crazy. <laughs> and then you put down Spongebob, it's like, I mean... Maybe. Spongebob is the god of the moon who speaks to the moon. <laughs> I also want to point out, like, I was almost positive it was some sort of book. I just couldn't put my finger on it. I still have no clue what it is, but I did try to search some of the terms. No matter what I searched for brings the light, it was only Jesus. So there was a possibility I had to plan for, which is you're doing a podcast on Jesus. So, uh, fun fact, I didn't actually Google my uh, hint to see what would come up beforehand. I have a feeling the ebooks that Matt scrolled right past were the ebooks that I want to, well, ebooks of the books I want to talk mean, about. I, I want to point out, I did also check and I got some ebooks, but they are all like detective novels of this man who goes to Japan. And this line was like, he doesn't know anything about Japan except from the book he read Shogun. Okay, probably not those ebooks then. Um, but he knows criminals, that's what I know. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Alright, so I think we're just gonna sit and soak in those answers for a second while we talk about some other stuff, and I'll reveal the actual topic of the podcast once we're ready to get into it, alright? Okay, because there, there is some stuff that happened over the last couple weeks that I want to talk about. First off, uh, big Smash release, we got the fi uh, fifth character of the DLC pack, which is gonna be Byleth from Fire Emblem Three Houses. Which I'm happy about. And no one else on the internet is. And... Uh, they also announced that there's going to be six new fighter packs. There is an Altier uh, costume as a Mii fighter. It's a Cuphead uh, costume. Cuphead costume, which actually looks really damn good. It's like the song, uh, Sans one where it's going to have a song accompanying with it as well. Nice. And there's like three, four Mega Man costumes. 
My problem with these me costumes, though, is that they're being really nice to me Gunner, but none of the other ones. Yeah, I was gonna say, Mega Man and Cuphead sounds like a whole bunch of fucking Gunners. But, but even the good one, like Sans and Cuphead, are both me Gunners. So even the one Wait, that adds Sans is a Gunner? I would have yeah. imagined he was a brawler or a swordy well, guy. No, Sans doesn't fight. He uses his skull things to shoot laser Oh, yeah, that's right. It's been a while since I've actually fought Sans because I'm not a fucking monster. But yeah, a lot of people are very upset about it, saying, oh, not another Fire Emblem character, which now it's tied for second place, or not another Sword Fighter. It's, well, Sword Fighters are in the game. If you want a Dante, you can't complain about the Sword Fighter. Yeah, Ganon has a sword. When he uses his Final Smash, he has two swords. I mean, to be fair, he didn't always have a sword. That, that's True. kind of a new development for Ganon specifically. Well, he always had a sword. It was just his taunt when he won the game in Melee. Oh, true. Uh, but I actually ended up pulling up a he list. He didn't always use a sword. I'm pulling up a list of uh, most requested Smash characters by Japan, North America, and uh, Europe as of December. Look at that. And you can see Byleth was number uh, five for Japan. Uh, but looking at Nowhere the... in the rankings for America or the UK from what I can see. Yeah, it was kind of like a really Japan on it. We all knew uh, pretty much every final main character has gotten in the game. I yeah. wasn't surprised. But the disappointment I can understand being the fact that it was very hype with all the characters up to this point and ending with a character that we all kind of knew was going to be in the game at some point. Yeah. Uh, but you can look here and see some interesting things about characters that... Uh, might have a good chance. For example, we can see Crash is very highly requested in North America and Europe. Sora is highly requested among all now, three. This is one of the things I want to talk about because Sora is number one in the US and Europe and number two in Japan. But we have to remember, Sora is also a Square Enix character. Yeah, and we know what Square not... Enix did with Cloud. It's like you get no spirits, two songs, and a map. Yeah, I was going to say, Sora is very highly requested but unlikely to get into the game. Uh, Doom Guy is also highly requested in uh, the U.S. and uh, so is Master Chief. But yeah. I really enjoyed the idea of them putting in Doom Guy and then having like the Doom Smashes or whatever they're called, where he like rips demons in half <laughs> and just have him ripping Kirby in half. Two <laughs> uh, B is also on the list for Japan and the U.S., which is pretty cool. I enjoy that number seven from Japan is just Gundam, not a specific <laughs> Gundam, but just just, Gundam. just put a Gundam in the game. Full size Gundam versus no normal sized humans. Uh, one of the things I was thinking about, too, is, like, a Monster Hunter character would be great in the game. Yeah. Just because they have Rathos in there. Uh, but also, uh, and it, when you look at the list of characters, you can see that the U.S. is just a joke for characters. Yeah. yeah. Is that the Super Monkey Ball monkey at the bottom of the U.S. No, list? no that's Bandana Waddledee. Oh, Jesus. Waluigi, Master Chief, Steve, Gino... So, Shantae, the U.S. used this chance to request characters and just listed a bunch of memes that they yeah. want. Although, the top three do seem like they'd be viable characters for Smash. Cra uh, Sora, Crash Bandicoot, and, and Shantae. Shantae, yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, that, that's pretty much what I want to talk about specifically with the Smash release. The other thing I want to talk about was, we found out about a DLC pack for Fire Emblem Three Houses, which we've talked about. And now it should be renamed Four Houses. Last thing, we find out there's a mysterious secret house in the basement that is, it looks like, run by Yuritsa. Yeah. Uh, and they're known as the Ashen Wolves. <laughs> so, uh, I've actually preemptively gone back and fixed our podcast, guys. So, if you look at any of the titling of our podcast, I put three in brackets for all of our stuff. Did you? Uh, yep, I went back in those brackets around every time uh, for the titles. It says... Fire Emblem Bracket 3 Houses. Huh. Because that needed to be rectified immediately. True, because we always have to be right. You son of a bitch, you actually <laughs> did! <laughs> Jesus! <laughs> You're not wrong that it needs to be rectified, but that... Woo! Was not expecting you to go all the way up to do that. Yep. Uh, on YouTube and all the podcast platforms. It's now uh, qu uh, quotations around yeah. three. The three houses. 
I actually saw a pretty good meme about uh, the development too, where it's uh, everywhere you see where the light touches is our kingdom, Byleth. And it's like, what about those people in the basement? Never go there. <laughs> yeah, I like that. All right. I think we've dilly-dallied enough. Hopefully the people have submitted their guesses. So, our topic for today. Uh, I cheated a little bit. It's actually two different book series by the same author. But there's a, a pretty significant number of ties between the two of them, which is making me feel good enough about talking about both of them. So, we are going to talk about uh, the books by Brent Weeks. Uh, and he's written two different book series that I'm quite fond of. He's written the Night Angel Trilogy. And the Lightbringer series. So the angel who stalks the spray in the night is the night angel. The one who brings the light is the Lightbringer. Okay. Yeah, it was a bad clue and I apologize. <laughs> now that you said that though, I remember hearing about the second series of books, but not the first series. That's fair. Uh, so these books are okay. Uh, <laughs> they're okay no i i like the books i'll admit that the writing is not spectacular but what is spectacular about them is the magic systems that exist in these books also for those of you listening to the podcast i'm currently peeling the tape off the book before it gets permanently land st or stuck on there so that i don't actually ruin my book with fucking jock tape all right so there you go the name of the book is the night angel trilogy so uh these are We'll start with the Night Angel Trilogy. We'll kind of rush through that one because that one's the older one and the one I'm less interested in talking about. And then we'll move on to talking about the Lightbringer series. So, first of all, the Night Angel Trilogy is a trilogy, obviously, so it's based around three books. Um, and it is essentially the story of a small orphan boy. So, the Night Angel Trilogy is a trilogy in three parts, like most trilogies, except for Douglas Adams' fucking Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Or the three books of Lord of the Rings that are actually six books. That's something else. That isn't a trilogy, that's bullshit. Or Star Wars, which is a trilogy of trilogies. A trilogy of trilogies. I like the trilogy of trilogies, which is actually nine movies. Do you think they're going to do a trilogy of trilogy of trilogies, which ends up being 27 movies? Well, it's owned by Disney, yeah, so probably. <laughs> It'll happen eventually. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I'm going to actually not talk about the plot super... Uh, right away and f instead I'm going to start by talking about the things I like about these books which is kind of the magic in the world that they build so for the Night Angel series magic is essentially explained and each person has a certain capacity for magic and there's essentially three different almost like organs inside a human being except they're not actual physical organs they're magical organs which only can be sensed by magical beings uh, that control your ability to use and access magic you have your Glorviridin I don't know why that one has a fun name, because the other two don't. Uh, and the Glorverdon is essentially your magical reserve, so it's how much magic you can store up in your body, and then if you have to use magic, you, like, punch real fast or whatever, and you access all of that. And it's even hinted at in the book that, like, when mothers lift a car off their baby who's trapped underneath, that's people just tapping into their Glorverdon, and they aren't necessarily magical people, but because they have access to this magical power, they can maybe use it once or twice in their life. The, the next uh, element, not so fun of a name as Glorverdon, is the source. The source is how good you are at kind of refilling your kind of magical stores, your Glorverdon. I'm going to stop saying that word now. It's also an okay place where you can get your electronics. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so the source is how you recharge your power, as I was saying. Uh, most of, more often than not, people tend to charge their power through either sunlight or other kind of similar sources of light. At one point, uh, one character just lies next to a forge for like a week straight to try and recharge his powers. That's also the most common piece to be missing from people. So 
people who are born without a uh, source are incapable of recharging their magical powers, so they don't really have access to magic their whole life. They have like one or two points in their life where they can potentially tap into their Glorveridden that they were born with and use that power. Okay, I like that kind of idea. Yeah, and it's a good way of explaining why some people are magical and some people aren't. It's not some people are just magically born with magic, it's some people are born with a source and the ability to recharge their Glorveridden. And essentially, the bigger your Glorveridden, the more magic you can use. The last one is the Conduit. The Conduit's the kind of interesting one because almost everyone in the universe has a Conduit. And the Conduit is the way that you take magic from your Glorveridden. Fucking <laughs> hell. I wish I didn't have to say that word so much. Let's just call it your Viridin. Your Viridin. Uh, the conduit is how you take magic from your Viridin and uh, convert it into magical powers. Uh, and so there are very few characters in the world who don't have conduits, and these characters are essentially magically broken because even though they have access to a source or a Viridin that's potentially massive and has huge stores of magic, and they have the ability to take in more magic to fill up their Glorviridin, they don't have a way to take magic out of their Glorviridin. And so these characters are considered magically broken, and there's just no way they'll ever be able to perform any amount of magic in their life, unlike other characters. Wouldn't this mean they could technically explode? I'm not sure how the magic works in this universe. Uh, kind of. There's, uh, there's one point, so, some characters have smaller glor- not glorverdens, smaller conduits, so they have to funnel their magic through very tightly, and some characters are believed to have blocked conduits, and so, a way of trying to deal with a blocked conduit is to overfill your Viridin until magic literally explodes out of you clearing out the blockage, which is why that one character was lying by a forge for like a week straight. He was trying to fill himself with magic so much that he was forced to use magic through his conduit and break free the blockages that exist there. There's never really an adequate explanation as to how blockages get there in the first place, but whatever, they do, and that's all. Fair enough. I will admit, part of me was really hoping when you were naming off those body parts, just tonsils would be in there. <laughs> it's like, makes sense. Yeah, and there's also your appendix. That's uh, It serves no purpose for magic, but it's listed as a magical uh, ability. That's why we can't use magical powers. Tonsils and appendixes. So, uh, as for magic users, there's a couple different types of magic users. There's mages are the most common ones. They're people with like a decent proportion for the all three of these different abilities. They're people who can use magic regularly throughout their life and practice and train it. And mages from different regions have different specialties. Like, mages from one region become really good healers, whereas mages from another region become really good at doing destructive magic and shit like that. And the different regions have different colors associated with them, like the healing mages are called green mages, and the fire mages are called red mages, very fucking surprisingly. And they even go so far in the books to explain that, like, it's not that people born there have a higher inclination to do healing magic, for instance, it's that because that region values healing magic so much, even if someone perhaps has a bit stronger capabilities with fire magic. If they're born there, they're more likely to practice their healing magic. And so it's not that people born there have a higher tolerance for this type of magic. It's just that that's what they train so people from there tend to... So it's more of a cultural norm type thing. Exactly. Uh, the next type of magical users we have are called Kakarafires. Fuck this book and its weird fucking names. Kakarafires, <laughs> uh, which are those characters I was talking about earlier who are born without a conduit. And that's because there are magical artifacts in the world called Kakaris, and these Kakaris supposedly fix characters with broken conduits and allow them to access their Glorveridden and cast powerful magics like they were born to do, but never could. They're also known to disappear you in the Lost Woods. Exactly. The Kakari. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> you got there, Matt. Come on, Matt. Get your A-game going. Key's not the one making puns. You should be making puns here, Matt. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll work on it. And last but not least, the potentially coolest magic users in my mind 
are uh, the Verdmeisters. Uh, and essentially the way that works is there's an entire culture up to the north who all worship this one god. Of course it's up in the north. Of course it's up in the north. Uh, and this god essentially blesses them with magical powers uh, called the Veer. And so it's never really explained why their magic is so completely different uh, from the rest for, through the first book. But then as you get into the second book, you start to find out that every single member of this culture prays to this god. And when you pray to the god, you're unwittingly essentially depleting your Viridin into this god's magical stores that they control. And then the god gifts that magical power to their Verdmeisters to use themselves. So it essentially takes people who potentially don't have a great source or glory Viridin, but have a powerful conduit and gives them access to magic that they wouldn't normally have access to gives people who have a shitty conduit a way to use their magic powers that they normally wouldn't be able to use. So it's a way of like turning, instead of each individual having different balances, the entire cultural gets to like pool their sources together. Wait a second. Up north, sharing resources, it's the Russians, isn't it? it it's probably the Russians. It also Communism sounds, lives again. It sounds a little bit like magical socialism, so it also might just be Canada. Oh, fair. We're sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> So the thing about this, uh, these Verdmeisters and the magic that they have is that the magic is referred to as the Veer, and it essentially presents itself as tattoos on their body, except they're like black moving tattoos that sometimes pierce their skin in black thorny ropes of magic. I don't know. It's weird, but cool. Would you say Veered? I mean, they probably would with their accent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the thing about the Veer is the Veer is oftentimes considered like sentient, so it has a mind of its own. So there's times when, like, they'll try and shoot a character from behind in the back of the head, and the Veer will reach up out of them and block the arrow, even though they don't know the arrow's coming, because the Veer decides, this person's still useful to me, I'm going to keep them alive so I can act through them. The Veer also kind of consumes the user, so people who use the Veer tend to lose their mind and go a little bit crazy, uh, and this is kind of always bad for the person who uses the Veer, but also makes them more powerful while they do it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm gathering from that that that's probably where the villains come from. Yes, the villains are always from the north, much like Canada. Okay. <laughs> Again, we're sorry. The rest of the world just doesn't know yet. <laughs> yeah. They're going to find out our true power. <laughs> the uh, one day they're just going to wake up and realize that Tim Hortons in every city block of the country. Man, I want to go to Tim Hortons, and I have to walk a whole half a block? Wait, I'm in Texas. Why is there Tim Hortons half a block away from me? <laughs> Welcome to the north. Everything is north now. Alright, so those are the different magic users. Now the cool thing, I'm going to keep talking about these fucking Verdmeisters, because they're by far the most badass magic users in the world. Uh, and so, these Verdmeisters have the ability to also summon, essentially, zombies, in that the way it works is you have to take human bones, arrange them into a human-like shape, and then supply them with clay and water, and then put a demon soul into that pile of ingredients, and it will form into a human body, and you essentially now have a zombie you control. Except you also don't always have to arrange them into human shape. You could, like, arrange them... They still have to be human bones, but if you arrange them into, like, a dog shape or, like, a horse shape, you can essentially make, like, a demon dog or a demon horse. It sounds like it's a homunculus, not a zombie. It's kind of like a homunculus, but they constantly refer to them as zombie-esque, so whatever. Uh, but the thing about the these demons, if you try and shape them into non-human forms, because the bones and the spirit are both originally of human origin they fucking hate it and so these demons get real mad if you try and ride around on one when it's a horse because it's like no i'm a human what the fuck are you doing to me which is cool the weird thing <laughs> yeah. about these zombies is uh well the weird thing <laughs> yeah we're not at the weird part yet uh these zombies operate on a base 13 number system and they make a big deal about that so the way that works out 
is if you create 12 of these zombies, you're all fine and dandy. But the moment you try and create a 12th zombie, uh, you actually have to create a more powerful zombie to control those 12 for you. Because you can no longer directly control 13 zombies. You can only control up to 12 of any of these zombies. Huh. So if you create... 12 ferali, which are the lowest level ones, you now have to create a daemon before you can create a 13th. Daemons are slightly more powerful, slightly more difficult to control. If you want to control 13 daemons, you have to create a bone lord, which is an awesome name for a zombie. The cool thing about bone lords is at that point they start to get a little bit more sentient and can actually start using the magic themselves, which is weird again, because now you've got zombies who can, in theory, create other zombies. This actually comes to a really cool point. There's nothing weird about that concept. Yeah, you're right, I guess. Um, it's cool and terrifying at the same time. Yes. Uh, the really cool thing about this is there's one point in the book where one of the bad guys come up, comes up against another evil army, and this evil army has 12 bone lords at his control. He's like, you can't defeat me, I have 12 bone lords. And then the first bad guy's like, you know what? I'm just going to create one of the next thing up and take control of your entire army, and now it's my army. And the first guy's like, oh, fuck, you can do that? And he's like, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> and then he does that and just steals Buddy's army and kills him. And it's <laughs> fucking hilarious. So wait, you can just, if you, as long as you have something that's a higher rank than the zombies, you can immediately take control of the yes, zombies? Yes, because essentially the way it works is the Bone Lords are all, like, swear, they don't swear their fealty to you as the person who created them. If there is a fiend, which is the next level up, they immediately swear their fealty to the fiend. If there's an archangel, not an archangel, an archangel, uh, then they immediately, all the fiends swear their fealty to the archangel. Now, 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 quick aside, Peter. Is it archangel because that's what he named it, or did he make a typo and he doubled damn on it? Yes. <laughs> I don't fucking know. Probably both. If you create 13 archangels, you need a night lord to control those. Now... No one in the books has ever created 13 Night Lords, although the belief is that if you create 13 Night Lords, you summon the god of darkness, Kali, and Kali is actually the one who controls the veer that they all use their magic through. So, yeah, apparently god is just one level above Night Lord. Lovely. I guess that makes him an edge lord. Exactly. Master at edging. I mean, something else. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure we're not talking about double penetration? <laughs> I'm sure we're not talking about double penetration. <laughs> Alright, so at this point, now that I've given you a healthy background into the world, I'm going to jump right into the plot a little bit. Now, just before we do get into that, is this only for one of the series, or is this for both of them? This is only for one of the series. Okay. We're still on the Night Angel trilogy. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, the Night Angel opens up with a small orphan child by the name of Azoth. Cool names in this book, I promise. That's why he's an orphan. Yeah, uh, so he is uh, raised in the city streets, the mean streets. Um, he's not raised, he's an orphan. But he grows up amongst a guild of orphans, and it turns out that there's a whole bunch of these different guild of orphans who all scrounge together money to survive and buy food and all this fun shit. Uh, and Azoth decides he wants a better life for himself, so he finds... The greatest wet boy in the world, Durzo Blint. Wet boy is a fun word for assassin in this series. Uh, except uh, assassins, uh, wet boys consider themselves so many levels above assassins because assassins don't have access to magic. Wet boys do have access to magic. So oh, it gets real fucking just edgy at points because like there's a line where uh, the or the wet boy is talking about how he's not an assassin, he's a wet boy. Assassins have targets 
wet boys have debtors because once they take the contract, the target's essentially already dead. Like, wow, that's fucking <laughs> so full of yourself. But whatever. <laughs> Anyways, this uh, world-famous wet boy, Durzo Blint, uh, disagrees at first, but finally agrees to take Azoth under his wing and train him as an assassin. Or as a wet boy, but initially as an assassin. I, I'm feeling an affinity with this author right now because it just sounds like he has no talent for naming things at all. And that's very much me. <laughs> he named them Arc Angles. <laughs> it's, it's a little fucking iffy. So, essentially, Azoth ends up studying as a wet boy. Fuck. Under Durzo Blit. I hate saying a child is a wet boy. So he trains as a wet boy under Durzo Blint. Uh, while training under him, he begins to discover that he is also magically broken. Uh, he's the character who lies by the forge for hours on end trying to overpower his magic so that he can finally clear out his blocked conduit. Now, from what you told us already about it takes sunlight to do this... Wouldn't the sun be stronger than the forge? So shouldn't he be like, you know, sunbathing? Yeah, I don't know why he lies next to a forge, but he does. And it's... <laughs> that's why he had to do it for a whole goddamn week. Uh, but he ends up discovering uh, after entering a... So he decides to enter a tournament on behalf of the evil criminal underworld to try and prove that even though the king is the ruler of the land, the criminal underworld actually runs shit in this area. So he enters the tournament. While he's in the tournament, he gets, like, magically checked out to prove that he's not doing any magic while he's in the ring. Um, and the healer who's checking him out is like, oh, fuck, you don't have a conduit. That's weird. I've only ever heard of it in Legend. They call your kind Kakarifiers. It's weird and shit, you know, right? And so he discovers that he can't possibly do magic. And the only way he's ever going to get to do magic is if he finds one of these magical artifacts known as a Kakari and uses it to fix himself. And then we later find out that Durzo Blint knew this all fucking along and was just forcing him to lie next to a forge for a week straight for no fucking reason. Oh, so he told him to lie next <laughs> yes, to a forge. Okay, exactly. that makes much more sense. Uh, and so now Durzo essentially agreed to take him on as a apprentice because he knew he was a Kakarifier. And Kakarifiers not only heal themselves when they bond with a Kakari, but also essentially are drawn to Kakaris. And Durzo's hoping that... Uh, Azoth will call to a Kakari and then Durzo can just take it from him after he bonds with it and fixes his magical being. Uh, also at this point, Durzo straight up murders Azoth, but then brings him back under a new name of Kylar Stern because the child had to die to take on a new identity. And it's just a weird fucking scene where he stabs him through the chest and then later reveals, oh, it was just a contact poison. You're not actually dead. And he's like, but I got stabbed through the fucking heart, but cool, I guess. I guess I'm alive. <laughs> no, no, that was a magic. <laughs> Magic. So we go through this whole book. Um, Kyler ends up finding a Kakari to bond with. Only it turns out to be a fake. What's the word I'm looking for? Counterfeit? Counterfeit. Yes, exactly. A counterfeit Kakari that people have been trying to use to prove that they're very powerful beings. Uh, but while he's searching for this fake Kakari, he like emotionally, like spiritually calls out. He's like, come to me, Kakari. And then a different Kakari comes and, like, smacks him in the face. And he's like, what? How did that happen? And Durzo gets real fucking pissed off because the Kakari that just came and smacked Kyler in the face was Durzo's Kakari that he had all along and just wasn't <laughs> admitting to. <laughs> I'm noticing a trend. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so Kyler ends up bonding with Durzo's Kakari, which pisses Durzo the fuck off. 
They go through the rest of the book, and Kyler ends up killing off Durzo and taking on his mantle of the Night Angel because the Kakari he bonded with was the Black Kakari. Which is weird because according to legend, there are six Kakaris, and they are red, green, white, blue, silver, and brown. There is no Black Kakari. What the fuck is going on? Uh, maybe he used some uh, chalk tape over the top of it. Uh, no, so <laughs> close. <laughs> uh, we end up discovering that. Uh, those six Kakaris we all know about are actually just shitty, imperfect copies of the original black Kakari that Durzo's been holding on to for fucking millenniums, and he just keeps changing his name and becoming a new wet boy under a different name every, like, hundred years or something. So, Kyler takes the black, uh, Kakari, ends up discovering that with the black Kakari, he is now known as the Night Angel, an avatar of justice, mercy, and retribution, and just like, cool... I'm going to peace and just kind of leaves with the girl of his dreams from his childhood who was also an orphan. What did he do specifically that got him all these titles? It's just a title that comes with owning the black Kakara, essentially. So that's that's book one. Kyler just fucking pieces off, leaves the city he was in to be besieged by these invaders from the north who have the special magical abilities. Now, I do have a question because, uh, could you repeat his name again, the second name he gets? Kyler. Kyler what? Kyler Stern. It sounds familiar. Um, does he... This might be skipping ahead. Does he get the ability to nullify magic later on? Kind of, yes. Okay, I think I know who this character is now. So, uh, in book two of the series, we learn that... Uh, Kyler starts to learn a little bit more about who the Night Angel is. Uh, kind of realizes that this has been a character who has existed throughout history under several different names. Although, he's the only one who actually knows that all of those different names were just Durzo pretending to be different fucking people. So, he also realizes that all of these different people who Durzo was were just different forces of fucking destruction. Like, they would walk into a town, destroy it completely, and then leave. And he does not want to do that. And he's like, nah, I'm, that's not who I am. I'm not going to do that. So, he moves into a monastery with his childhood orphan friend. And he does it. And, uh, pretty much. <laughs> At the same time, we go back to that first city... Where Kyler just kind of fucking abandoned because he was like, nah, peace, I'm outie. Uh, and we find out that the God King, who is the ruler of that region up to the north, uh, has just kind of taken over control. And he's like, this is my area now. And from here, I'm going to capture the rest of the world. Uh, I need this one specific city first. Exactly. Uh, it was strategically significant, I guess. Uh, I, It's hinted at in the books that he knew about that fake counterfeit Kakari uh, from the first book, and so that was why he invent invaded the city, because he also wanted to find a Kakari to power himself so he could win the war. The middle books, it's a lot of generic middle child bullshit. It's a lot of, we started here, we're ending here, how do we get from A to B? So there's a lot of just stuff that happens for the sole purpose of getting the characters to where they need to be for book three. We also find out at this point that Kyler is now immortal because he dies at one point and just kind of straight up comes back a few days later. I mean, this is the second time he's done it, so old yeah. news. Um, and we end up finding out that the Black Kakari uh, imbues the user with the powers of immortality. So all the other ones have a version of immortality where... Wait like, a second. Didn't the other guy have the Black Kakari that he was bonded to? Uh, he did, but Kyler stole it from him, so he was no longer bonded to the Black Kakari, so he no longer had the power of oh. immortality. Kind of. You're jumping ahead a little bit. I'll reveal a secret to you in book three. So He's actually 
Dawza or whatever his name is. So, uh, at the same time, uh, Kyler decides he wants to marry his childhood friend who was an orphan who he escaped his hometown with. To a monastery? What yeah. if the girl's the guy? So, he buys these, like, magic bonding rings that are, like, earrings, but if you put them in your ear, you're now magically bonded to the person who wears the partner ear in their ear, and now you can never be apart, and your love for each other is eternal, and it, like, fucks with your emotions and all this shit. But he doesn't actually propose to the girl. He just kind of, like, takes it with him. He's like, fuck it. I'll figure it out later. Um, then he and another assassin decide to go hunt down this god king and just free Scenario, which was the first city, uh, from the god king by killing the god king. They both go into the throne room to fight the god king. Kylo just gets straight up murdered in the god king's throne room. And the other assassin who was with them uh, doesn't realize that he has the power of immortality and is going to come back from this. So she's so fucking heartbroken that it's not very adequately well explained, but she's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pierce your ear with this earring that you had on you and then pierce my ear with the other earring, even though I don't even fucking know you very well. And then he comes back and he's like, what the fuck? You married me. And she's like, no, I didn't. I just put on these cool earrings. It's like, nope, we're married now. And I didn't want this. And this is the way her life is. <laughs> Can you take off the earrings? Nope. They're on you forever. Uh, so they end up killing the God King, uh, and then we, that's kind of where book two ends, and we go into book three. Book three is the book full of really fun revolution, revelations, revelations. So, first thing we learn in book three is the secret to how Kyler's new immortality works, which is that every time he dies, uh, and comes back to life, it's essentially by stealing life from someone else who he knows and loves, so if there's someone he cares about, they die and that's what allows him to come back. And it's not always immediately as he dies, but like within a week after him coming back, they will die of some unnatural causes. Uh, we also, during this book three, have another character come back to like meet with Kyler and like explain all the shit to him. And then Kyler's like, how the fuck do you know all this? And the guy's like, I don't know. I guess the Kakari gave me one extra life to live with and I'm done with what I'm doing. He's like, wait, are you Durso? And he's like... Cool, bye. Just gonna head out now. <laughs> so, I, I want to make something clear here. From what I understand, this man only likes orphans. Because he grew up with... So, essentially, his immortality is powered by orphan blood. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> and the, like, fucked up thing is, like... Now we know that every time, like... Because he's been alive for a millennia and he kept changing his name... He wasn't just changing his name. He was specifically killing himself and then coming back under a new life. So... Every time he got to the part where people were like, wow, you've been alive for a real long time, he'd be like, oh, I guess someone I love has to die now. I don't fucking know. But then they uh, all work together to defeat the big evil, and it's kind of a shitty climax. But whatever. It, interesting magic world. Interesting books. Wait, wait, I have another question about this reincarnation or mortality thing. Yes. So he didn't recognize Dorzo. Yes. Does you, Do you change when you die and come back? No, you don't, but Durzo was apparently such a master of magic that he just came back and was like, cool, you know what I'm going to do? Change my face a bunch and not look like me. Okay, because I'm a bit confused about it. I was like, ah, who the hell are you? But, like, he didn't see himself changing? <laughs> no, he, uh, the characters don't change unless you're Durzo Blint and decide that magic doesn't apply to you. <laughs> so that is the Night Angel. Any questions before we move on to the Lightbringer? Uh, are you sure it's Night Angel and not Night Angle? I am sure it is Night Angel. It's the Night Angel and the Archangel. Remember, it's an important distinction. That's how you know which one's which. Now, uh, I, this is more of a question based on the zombie summoning thing. But does anyone ever get to that top level in the book? Actually, the final climax of the book 
is them summoning Kali and then killing Kali to defeat all the Verdmeisters simultaneously. So yes. In fact, classic taking out the mothership and stopping the war. Uh. Exactly. Uh, in fact, after uh, the God King is killed in book two, uh, one of his sons, who's actually a good guy who has the power of prophecy, decides he's going to take over this country to the north and try and rein in their terrible beliefs so that he can kind of keep them from doing more atrocities. Except the entire third book is just him performing atrocity after atrocity to try and, like, prevent his people from performing atrocities on their own. It's like, you're not making the situation better. You're making it significantly fucking worse right now. Fell into the old Fable 3 trap. Exactly. Alright, so. The Lightbringer. A different book that's also weird, but I love the way they handle magic in this book. So. It was by the same author. Same author. Does he have the same naming scheme for things that in that it just doesn't make sense? <laughs> no, it's kind of the opposite naming scheme where the name makes a little bit too much fucking sense. <laughs> a little on the nose. A little on the nose. Is the main character named Hero? So our protag? <laughs> the uh primary uh protagonist and his whole family uh are their main like defining character trait is that they're very uh cunning and manipulative and charismatic. And their family name is fucking Guile. <laughs> I don't get it. What Street Fighter have to do with this? Oh, God. Uh, All right. Do they work with everything? Is that the twist? Yes. I don't okay. even have to make a joke about that. So, uh, before once again, before we talk about the plot, I'm going to talk about the things I like about these books, which is kind of the way they handle magic and some of the world-building shit that goes into it. So, the way magic works in The Lightbringer is that it's all light-based, which I know you didn't see coming there, but we're going to keep moving. So. <laughs> well, I mean, I could have saw it as it comes from the dark, except for the chosen hero who brings it through light. Fair. So, uh, this magic uh, manifests itself as Luxon, which is the name for, like, the physical manifestation of magic, because their magic always takes form in some sort of physical aspect. It's never just, like telekinesis or shit like that it's always something uh physical oftentimes they make it look like other types of magic like i'm gonna physically create this thing to lift this other thing and now it looks like i'm doing telekinesis uh and so isn't like lux yeah i'm checking right now lux is like the latin word for light exactly once again a little on the nose <laughs> so uh this luxon is broken up into all the different colors of the rainbow as we know red orange yellow green and blue nothing else well there's others but there's no purple or violet or indigo it's just red orange yellow green and blue what about gold <laughs> also no gold <laughs> that's not all the colors of the rainbow then so each of these different colors <laughs> uh has their uh each different like properties of how they uh, lux and manifest itself but also uh the people who draft these different colors end up taking on the personality of the color so for instance uh red luxon uh manifests itself as this like sticky gooey substance which is highly flammable and so it's often used for like burning down villages by shooting luxon all over it and then lighting the luxon on fire uh and it tends to I, I mean if that's your first jump to like i immediately think oh they like probably like light torches or something i mean they do also use it for lighting torches but they just got confused about what part the torch was there's like three different examples in the books of them using it to burn down fucking cities <laughs> Uh, and so the people who wield Red Luxon and the impact that it has on your emotions tends to make people a lot more impulsive or lustful or just generally destructive, which is why they tend to use it for burning down villages and not creating torches. So they're all arsonists. Got exactly. It. Uh, next up we have Orange Luxon, 
uh, which is just like a very slick, slippery, almost oily substance. It's oftentimes used either for oiling gears and mechanisms or for creating essentially grease traps. It is the least used Luxit in the entire series because it doesn't really do a whole fucking lot. I immediately went to slides. Yeah. I went somewhere else. We'll not go there. No, 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 no. We're going back there, man. Please tell us where you went. Well, we were originally going to talk about double penetration. (laughs) Okay, good. So long as it's been verbally said, we can now move on. Okay. Uh, And so the uh, kind of emotional end of the spectrum that Orange finds itself on is that it tends to make the users very empathetic and they're very good at reading other people's emotions. So a lot of people who draft with Orange Luxon tend to become artists because they can tell exactly what the person they're talking to once and then they can do their best to recreate it in the and world. And if they're things well-based, they can make amazing paints. Exactly. Ah, oh, that makes sense. Next up, we have Yellow, which is quite possibly the dumbest of the Luxons. I had a feeling. Uh, it's uh, emotional impact, because I'm going to start with that, is... It represents both emotion and logic in balance, and so does not affect your emotions in the slightest while drafting yellow lungs. And it's, um, the forms it takes, predominantly, it takes the form of a liquid, which the moment they stop using their will to force it into the shape of a liquid, it escapes into just back into light. And uh, essentially just, so yellow luxin is most commonly used for making torches, Except they're very shitty, not at all long-lasting torches because it just <laughs> very quickly evaporates back into yellow light. Uh, that is very desirable for a lot of people, though, because the trick to drafting different colors, as it's called, is in order to draft red Luxon, you have to have a red light source that you can see. So if you only are in the middle of a force and all you can see is green, you can't draft red Luxon very well. But if you have a red piece of parchment in front of yourself, you can. Because yellow is right in the middle of the spectrum... Uh, as it bounces off of other things, it tends to create all the different colors a little bit more efficiently than if you just had green light or something like that. The other thing that makes yellow real fucking dumb is for each of these colors, it's like a spectrum, as you know. There's not just one red, there's a hundred reds. There's not just one orange, there's a hundred oranges. And yellow uh, kind of falls in there somewhere. Yeah, there's same thing with yellow, except uh, each of these colors has like an ideal point right in the center that most perfectly exemplifies it. So for instance, for red... If you do an imperfect version of red, it's not as flammable and might actually douse flames if you cover it with imperfect red. Whereas perfect red will burn perfectly and leave no residue behind. Yellow, uh, in its imperfect form, makes these torches that don't last very long and kind of flare it. What do you think a perfectly formed yellow Luxon does? I'm guessing the most powerful light form in existence. Essentially, it is the strongest material known to man and is nigh indestructible. Main character's yellow, isn't he? It also nourishes all other colors. So, for instance, if I create a blue thing, it will slowly deteriorate into light and then disappear. But if I, like, stick a yellow core inside of it, then I'll constantly feed the blue and the blue will never wear away. So, yeah, it's the most bullshit color of all. It's the main character's color, right? We'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) That or he's got all the colors. You got it! He's got all the colors! He's the avatar. So next up we have green. Uh, Green is considered springy and flexible. It's used a lot for either like creating small orbs to throw at people and shit like that. It's mostly used in combat. And the emotions it imbues in its users is the uh, emotion of wildness and freedom. It doesn't really... It's not that it disrespects authority. It just doesn't respect authority in the first place is the way they describe green. It's indifferent. Yeah, it's just kind of like, I do what I want, and there's nothing you can say that'll make me change my mind. The thing I dislike most about this is, as you go through, you expect 
Red should be kind of close to orange. Orange should be kind of close to yellow in terms of the emotions. But no, they're just all over the fucking place. Case in point, once we get to blue... <laughs> like these rules for magic. Exactly. Once we get to blue, the emotional end of the spectrum for blue is that it's orderly, inquisitive, and super rational in that they don't allow emotions to cloud their judgment at all. They just think about things purely in terms of, like, what is the most rational option here. Very close to the wild freedom of green, right? <laughs> uh, blue, when formed into Luxon is also hard, strong, and smooth. It's also the most commonly used building material uh, of all the Luxons. Cool? You with me so far? Cool. I make... have a slight problem with this stuff being used to build things, because doesn't it disintegrate? <laughs> yep. <laughs> they also use regular building materials like stone and wood and all that bullshit. But also, in very fancy places, they also use blue Luxon, which, as you've said, does deteriorate, but they just don't draw attention to that fact. <laughs> Pay no mind to the man behind the curtain. So, next up after uh, those five main colors of the rainbow, they even draw attention to the fact that violet is a color, but there's no, like, violet Luxon or anything like that. There's no way to Yet. use it. There are more Luxons than the ones I've mentioned, though. So, as you know, uh, light is just a wavelength of uh, electromagnetic radiation. It's a sp very specific amount of wavelengths that we see light as. Beyond that, there are other things. So, for instance, beyond red, we have infrared, which is how we oftentimes, if we use an uh, infrared camera, it's how we see temperature and light radiation from temperature. Red or Infrared exists in the world of the Lightbringer series, except it's called subred, uh, and it is, once again, how we see temperature. So, oftentimes, characters who draft subred can also see subred, and that allows them to see temperatures in things. And then they can... Take that into themselves and then draft it in the form of either heat, fire, sparks. The most common use is to create a flame crystal, which can then be given to someone else to just magically start a fire. They are considered the most purely emotional of drafters. They draft purely on emotion and nothing else. At the other end of the spectrum, where we have uh, ultraviolet, we have superviolet in this world. Superviolet. He's really got to get his naming scheme up using, like, you know, the Latin stuff and the not Latin stuff. Yeah. So, superviolet uh, is essentially just an invisible form of light. So, everyone else can see all the others. Even if you draft subred, you can usually, you might not be able to see subred, but you can usually tell that they're doing fire shit and stuff like that. Superviolet can, or, yes, superviolet can only be seen by people who can draft superviolet light. Uh, and so, they, whenever they create Luxon with it, it essentially appears invisible to everyone else, but it can be used for very limited sources. So some people use it to either draft coded messages. Like, for instance, if I send a letter to Matt and I cover it in Superviolet Luxon, I can write out a code that only he can see if he can also see Superviolet Luxon. But if I can't, you just wasted your time. Exactly. Uh, also, if you're working together with someone who could draft another color, I can, like shoot a superviolet line at some target far off in the distance and no one can see my line. And then you can use that line as essentially like a path to send more powerful Luxon along. And then it looks like you're magically tracking your target at all times. And no, you're just sending along my line that I already sent ahead of time. I don't know why that's easier, but it is. All right, just live with it. I'm just going to make a, a, an assumption here. Is the main villain also a person who uses like an anti-Luxon? Kind of. We'll yeah. get there. <laughs> so... Throughout the first two books, or no, sorry, throughout the first book, that's all there is. Initially, there's just the initial five, and then, like, surprise, there's actually these other two, Subred and Superviolet. And then we get into the 
second book, and we're like, surprise again, there's another one beyond subred. So just below subred, we have a thing called Peril. And it's even more <laughs> invisible than Superviolet, and has even less uses. <laughs> a lot. Uh, you would think you would go the opposite way, and it has more uses. Yep. So, uh, essentially, uh, same as Superviolet, it can only be seen by people who draft Peril, except... Peril is so freaking rare that there's very few people who can actually see it, where Superviolet's a little bit more common and more people who can read it. Uh, Peril can also be used as X-ray specs, essentially, in that, like, it will pass through most materials. So I could look at a person, and if I'm drafting Peril and I, like, shoot a blast of Peril at them, I can see if they have anything on underneath their clothes or anything like that. Now, for Peril, does a person with Peril see all the... Superviolet as well, or is that no crossover? With that? Well, first of all, they're on opposite ends of the spectrum because Peril is next to infrared, not yeah. superviolet. No, I mean like with these like invisible things. Oh. Does the more rare invisible see the less rare invisible? No. Okay. Uh, it, additionally, the people who can draft Peril get kind of fucked a little bit because they also tend to be the most commonly colorblind people among all the other people in the world. So they can't even see all the normal colors, let alone oh. superviolet. I think uh, I see where the edge is going to come in here. So, next up, we have, and for like the next two books, we're just kind of left with, that's all there is. There's Peril, it's a weirdly imbalanced system. And then like in the fourth book, they're like, alright, fuck it. There's something beyond Superviolet as well. And beyond Superviolet in our world is X-rays. And so uh, they, in this world, have uh, Kai as their type of uh, <laughs> light beyond Superviolet. It's given very little like exposure in the books. It's not really talked about a huge man. Except it exists, and if you know, Kai is the Greek letter for X, so X-rays, there's that. Uh, it's also, like Peril, good at seeing in X-ray vision, because now metal and bones glow when you're drafting Kai. But also, supposedly it just straight up fucking causes cancer. Like, the one person we know of who drafts Kai is like, I refuse to draft Kai because I can feel tumors growing inside of me every time I draft Kai. <laughs> Jesus. Alright, there are two more colors. Do you want to guess what they are? Uh, black and white. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so, our main character logically should be black, but I feel like it's going to be white. Kind of. <laughs> so, white and black are both uh, considered like mythical things that don't actually exist in the world. Even though Peril and Kai are also not supposed to exist. What the fuck ever. So, white... Luxon is like the idea of drafting all the lights together. They would meld together into White Luxon. All many people have tried to draft White Luxon before. No one has ever done it except for one character in the books, and it's very hush hush. Let's not talk about what happened. Uh, similarly, Black is kind of the negative Luxon in that when you draft Black Luxon, it'll absorb all other Luxons it comes in contact with. If I hit someone who can draft one of the colors with Black Luxon. Uh, it will absorb all the Luxon out of their body and they won't be able to draft for a while. Once I like stop drafting Black Luxon, it's the most stable one on its own. It becomes Obsidian, and Obsidian has that same property where if you cut someone and hold Obsidian up against their blood, it drains all of the Luxon out of their body as well. Although specifically only if they're in absolute darkness. If they can see light, they, it does not drain the Luxon out of their body. It's just kind of hand wavy, doesn't worry about it too much. There you go. That's all the colors. So, once again, we have, in order... Kai, Subred, Red, Orange, Yellow, Green, Blue, Superviolet, and fuck. It's Peril at the beginning and Kai at the end. Fuck you, we're done. That's the colors. 
So now you may be wondering, what about colorblind people? Don't they get a little bit fucked in this world because they can't see all the colors? Yes. Yes. Yes, they do. So it's said in the book that approximately half of all men are just straight up colorblind. And they just get kind of fucked over by this fact. Because they were shooting light at them at each other. No wonder they're blind. Uh, but also at the other end of the spectrum, they're, so these colorblind people are called subchromats because they can't see all of the colors. Sub for lesser and chromat for color. Very original naming scheme. Now, even if you're colorblind, if you know you have something red, can you still use red? No. So you have to actually physically see the color. So it can't just be, I know this is red and it actually is red. So there's actually a pretty big deal about that because one of the characters in the book, uh, the kind of uh, religious leader of the entire world, like the essentially Pope slash Emperor is his title, uh, is called the Prism, and he's the one character who can draft all of the colors. Except for Peril and Kai, we ignore Peril and Kai at all times. When I say all the colors, ignore that those two exist. Also black and white? Also ignore black and white exist. <laughs> so the Prism is the a Pope of the world. He can draft all of the normal colors. Rainbow Pope, yeah. He's also the only one who has the ability to split light. So normally, you have to have a source of red light hitting your eyes in order to be able to draft red light. The Pope, if he has white light hitting his eyes, he can split that into all the different colors internally and then choose the color he wants to actually draft out of that. And then at one point in the series... He starts going colorblind, and as he goes colorblind, he can no longer draft those colors. So even though he can't... Like, the first one he loses is he loses the ability to see the color blue. And the moment he starts losing the ability to see the color blue, he can no longer draft blue. Even when he sees white light, he feels it coming to him inside of himself. He knows that he knows how to split it, and he tries to do what he normally does to split it. But nope, he just can't draft blue anymore. So colorblind people just get straight up fucked in that... Who knows, maybe you're theoretically capable of drafting that color, but you can't see it, so nope, fuck you. Oh, okay. Hmm. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum from subchromats are superchromats, which are people who can see more specific definitions between the two different colors. Uh, or not between two different colors, but within a color. So superchromats are essentially the only people who can turn yellow into that solid yellow because you need to hit the exact right shade of yellow right. for it to become solid. Uh, so superchromats are considered special. Most women are superchromats. Very small amounts of them aren't superchromats. Uh, like one in a bajillion women are subchromats and apparently they just get fucked not literally of course uh or maybe literally i don't know i don't know their life but like there's this talk in the books about how it seems kind of unfair that men can't see as many colors and thus they're weaker drafters than women it's like yeah that sucks but imagine being a woman who can't see as many colors then nobody fucking likes you because you're like <laughs> you can't do the one thing you're supposed to be able to do so that's the basis of magic. Now let's talk about the people who use magic themselves. They're broken up into three different types. There are monochromats, which are people who can essentially draft exactly one of those 14 different colors. Uh, there are bichromats who can dra uh, draft two colors, and they're generally considered or they're generally adjacent colors. So for instance, it's a lot more likely that someone can draft both red and orange than that someone can draft both red and blue. Finally, we have polychromats, or, which are people who can draft more than two colors. Most commonly, it ends up being three, and once again, they're still adjacent, although it is possible for someone to perhaps be able to draft red, blue, and green, even though they aren't adjacent colors. The final term is a full-spectrum polychrome, which is someone who can draft all of the colors like the prism. Our main character is also a full-spectrum polychrome, even though he doesn't realize it at the beginning. Okay. Makes sense. Uh, the antagonist of the story is also a full-spectrum polychrome, but the way he gets there is through drafting black Luxon. Except he learns a special technique where normally it drains the Luxon out of a person's body. He just, like, stores it back into his own body so that he can recast Luxon that other people have casted. So, technically he drafts black Luxon, but uses it to essentially steal other people's magic and cast it for himself. 
Boom! Last thing to note about these magic users before I start talking about the fucking plot of these books <laughs> is uh, each person can only draft so much magic throughout their life. And it's usually measured by looking at their irises of their eyes. So if you look at a human iris, there's a small black dot in the middle. That's the pupil. There's the white ring around the outside. That's the white of your eye. And you have the colored ring in the middle. That's your iris. If you draft magic uh, over the course of your life, as you draft that color, your iris starts to fill up with that color. So for instance, if you draft red, your iris will fill with like a thick band of just solid red in your eye. And if that ring ever becomes bigger than your eye... Uh, it shatters, your entire eye turns the color of the choosing, uh, and then you essentially go insane. So, for instance, the earliest versions of these color whites, as they're called, that we see, is a blue color white who's drafted so much blue that his eye shatters, his eyes become perfect blue, and then he becomes insanely rational to the point where he starts deciding that Luxon's more resilient than my own skin. I'm going to start replacing my skin with Luxon by peeling it off and then covering it with blue Luxon. Oh. Yeah, they go... Full on insane. Okay, so they full on adapt to or take the characteristics of that color. Exactly. Okay. So really, just want a bunch of people with yellow going insane. Exactly, because they don't go insane; they stay perfectly normal. <laughs> uh, the red ones that you don't want to go insane—they're setting everything on fire. I imagine <laughs> they're setting everything on fire without going insane. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when they do go insane, yes, they set even more stuff on fire. But it's still just like doubling the amount of stuff they're setting so on fire. I can set more things on fire if I make myself fire. <laughs> what happens with the people with the uh, x-ray eyes when they... I haven't heard anything about the Peril or Kai going, uh, breaking the halo as it's called in the books. It's not very commonly talked about. But I assume the people who draft Kai can't because they get so riddled with cancer they die before they break the halo. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, and people with Peril... Uh, supposedly they're more highly empathetic when they draft that color. So they just like fall in love with everyone around them and just become like a fuck machine, just, I assume. I'm just imagining their eyes go invisible. <laughs> uh, there is the cool point with subreds because their magic often manifests itself in fire. Their eyes essentially become those fire, fire crystals I was talking about earlier, which can be used to create fire. So they just have like globes of fire in their eyes instead of eyes. It's cool. Huh. No downsides. Can they shoot fire beams from their eyes? I mean, probably, but not cool. as a part of their eyes, but just a part of the magic they naturally have access to. <laughs> um, so because they kind of go insane when they do this, uh, part of the religious doctrine of the world is as you get trained as a magic user, you make this oath or this bond, which is once you get to the point where you're going to break your halo, you have to turn yourself in for the freeing. And once a year... They have a freeing, which is they kill all the people who are going to go insane and break the halo and all that fun stuff. Uh, and then if you refuse to do that, you turn into a color white and you get hunted down and murdered uh, because they don't want crazy people running around their world. And it's super fun. So now we can start talking about the plot of the books. You know everything you need to know to fully understand the world of these books. So the book opens with the character of Kip. No last name given. Uh, Kip is a very poor child whose mother is a drug user and constantly chooses to use drugs over taking care of her own child. And so he has to make a living for himself by fending for himself while also making enough money to supply, supply his mother with more drugs so she doesn't take it out on him. Very early in the books, uh, Kip gets referred to as a super Cormat by one of the other characters, but like almost like a derogatory term, even though it just makes him better than everyone else in the world, as has already been established. 
But at this point, we it's don't like know. making fun of nerds at school. Exactly. Uh, but at this point, we don't know what a super chromat is, so we're just like, cool, that's an insult that exists for Kip, I guess. Yeah, whatever. And then his hometown just gets straight up destroyed by some by both an army ruled by the king of the territory he lives in, as well as a whole bunch of red drafters who, as I've mentioned, just like to burn down towns in their free time. That's a bit awkward class and ske- uh, clash and schedule right there. Yeah. You were... Ah, de- oh, shit, I was destroyed. So, why... Take that corner of the town. So, we now cut away from Kip's hometown, which is under attack, to go visit the prism of the world, whose name is Gavin Guile, as I was talking about. And uh, Gavin is the prism, and he's been the prism for 16 years now, which is a little bit weird, because most prisms die after 7 years, and if they don't die after 7 years, they die after 14 years. And so he's assuming he's going to die after 21 years, but whatever. He's not too worried about it. That is, unless they get assassinated. Assassinations tend to cut down that time. But if they die of natural causes, it tends to happen on a multiple of seven years. Yeah, I was going to say, that. why is that specifically seven years there? Because seven's the magic number, and there's seven colors plus four. Whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Gavin, the one of the cool things we learned about Gavin right off early on is the duties of the prism. So the way magic works in this world is that if too many people draft one color, it throws imbalance into the world. Kind of like the whole Star Wars philosophy, whereas if there's too many light users, it makes the dark side users a lot more powerful. If there's too many dark side users, it makes the light side users more powerful. Uh, in this world, all the colors have a diametric opposite, except yellow, because yellow is fucking dumb. So, for instance, red is the opposite of blue. If there's too many red drafters and they're all drafting red, then it makes the blue drafters who are left significantly more powerful, and they become a bit of a blight on the world. So... The prism's main purpose in the world is to bring balance to the chromaturgy, which is the term for color magic. So, uh, during the mornings, he'll, like, sense the magical imbalances in the world. And it's never really adequately explained how he does this. But it'll be like, man, there's a lot of red going on in the world and blue's about to be thrown out of balance. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to shoot off big bouts of blue into the air to bring balance back in so that we don't get to a point where storms start ravaging the world because the magic's all out of balance. So does like he shoot these colors into the sky literally? Yeah, literally. Okay, so this is just pretty much his way of saying, hey, color that I'm not shooting, fuck off. Pretty much. Except it's a very big world, so most people probably don't see him unless they live on the island he lives on. <laughs> What's with these popes shooting colors into the sky? <laughs> I don't fucking know. <laughs> what would happen to his eyes when he uses the magic? So the cool thing about him... Uh, Rainbow eyes. Minus three colors. Prisms uh, break all of the fucking rules. So not only can he split light and can he draft all of the seven colors, which is very rare, he also has the special ability where if you look at his eyes, they actually look like prisms where you can just see a whole bunch of different colors reflecting through them. And his halos never like grow or shrink with the amount of magic he drafts. And so he can just draft as much magic as he wants, except he still gets sick if he drafts too much magic because there's limits on the world or whatever. Okay. But yeah, there's no limit, like, physical limit that you can track uh, compared to other people. Now, Gavin gets a letter from some drug user back in Kip's hometown saying, Hey, you got a son and you gotta come pick him up because you fucked me, like, 16 years ago during the war. Now, come pick up your son. Um, and Gavin's but like... that's where Kip's from. Yeah, that's where Kip's from. It's weird. Maybe Kip knows him. Maybe. Um, so Gavin's all like... It was that guy that called him a super chromat in the beginning. <laughs> Gavin's all like... Uh, fuck, I don't have a son, but whatever, I'll go check it out. And then the White, which is just the name of the, like, political ruler who's, like, on the same level as the Pope, but not the Pope, and technically has more political power, but not quite as much religious power as the Pope, whatever. Uh, Her title is the White, and the White reads this letter, and she's like, you got a son? He's like, I don't got a son. And she's like, ah, but you got a son. 
I know now. <laughs> uh, the letter says it. That's hard fact. So he decides to go visit uh, Recton, which is the hometown that Kip is from. He's like, I gotta figure out if I got a son or not. And so he decides to go visit there. Uh, he's traveling with his longtime girlfriend at the time. And he's like, hey, baby, let's go visit Recton because you got to do some crime shit there because she's also like a super spy. Uh, and so they go to visit Recton. So when you say she has to do some crime shit, does she, is she doing crime or is she stopping crime? Uh, she is infiltrating criminals to, in order to stop crime. So both. Okay. Um, so he ends up going down there. We discover while he's going down there that he has the power to travel much faster than anyone else and also to fly because he invented a magic ship that makes him travel much faster than anyone else in the world. And, like, it's kind of mind-blowing to everyone except us. It's essentially just, like, a speedboat or something like that. So it's not as <laughs> mind-blowing to the reader. Um, Is it made up of colors? Yes, it's made up of different colors. Nice. Um, and while they're flying towards Recton, they're like, holy shit, there's some smoke coming from that area. Let's go check it out. And so they go and check it out. Uh, they get there just in time to see the town being destroyed by all these red color users. Uh, and then they run down there. See two kids who are under attack, which is Kip and his best friend, Simple Simon. I don't know why that's his name, but it is. <laughs> uh, and so they get down there just in time to watch Simple Simon die and rescue Kip. And they're like, hey, Kip, what's up? And he's like, how do you know my name? And I'm like, uh, they didn't actually say Kip there. So we're going to move backwards a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they rescue Kip. And then the king who was destroying the town comes down. And he's like, hey, I got to kill that child because I'm killing everyone in this town. And they're my people so I can do what I want. And the Pope, Gavin, is like, but I'm the Pope and I'm emperor of the entire world. So he's also like my people. So no, you can't kill him. And then uh, the king is like, yeah. You got me there. Okay, bye. No, the king is like, yeah, but he's more directly my people than your people. So I'm going to take him and kill him. And then the Pope fucking knocks the kid unconscious. And he's like, yeah, but he's my son. So I'm taking him. And the king's like, what? He's like, I'm taking him. And then he throws him into a boat and just leaves. <laughs> and the king's like... Okay, that's a thing that just happened. <laughs> Kip comes to and he's like, what happened? What? Where'd the king go? And the Pope's like, hey, you're my son. Have fun with that information. The longtime girlfriend... <laughs> get off my boat. The longtime girlfriend who's been with him this entire time is like, holy fuck, you have a son and you never told me? I'm gonna peace. And she leaves. Alright, let's take a brief break from this to explain that Kip is not actually Gavin's son. I knew it. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. Kip is actually Gavin's brother's son, Gavin. So, let's go back in time. Oh, wait a second, wait. <laughs> um, we're so, gonna, does Gavin have a brother named Gavin? Yes, Gavin has a brother named Gavin. So we're going to go back in time a little bit, try and explain this. Matt, it's going to make sense, I promise. So, I mean, prism split colors, I guess he kind of split in the process. No, I guess, I'm really hoping that that guy that he called out for, like, the guy was like, hey, Super Chromat was actually his son. I'm really hoping that's how this turns out. <laughs> so, jumping back in time about 16 years to when Gavin supposedly fucked Kip's mother, um, we find out that there was a war that happened a long time ago. Because normally there's only ever one pope in the world. There's one born per generation. When he dies, a new pope is born. However, two brothers were born who both had the powers of the Pope. And the name Gavin. Uh, actually, one was named Dazen and one was named Gavin. Uh, and Dazen was straight up losing the war. And towards the end of the war, he meets with his primary general. And he's like, I don't think we can win this. And the general's like, I think we can win this. And he's like, yeah, but here's my thought process. I look a lot like Gavin. So what if during this final battle, I take him off to the side, I murder him in private, 
And then I just come out and say, I've been Gavin all along and just take over the winning army. And then I become Pope. And the general's like, you know what, Dazzin? That's a good idea. And Dazzin's like, don't call me Dazzin. Call me Gavin, because that's my name now. And that's what happens. <laughs> so the brothers were leading two armies. How did they get into a situation where you could just easily stab them off, off stage? I don't, I don't know. It's not sufficiently well explained, but... Hey, brother, let's go bowling. It was like a really smoky... Oh, we're at war. <laughs> it was a really smoky battlefield, and they were both on the front lines until he, like, tackles him into a cave and stabs him in the cave or something. Cave on the I front mean, lines. But here's the thing. Okay, I'm going to take over the winning army. If they're fighting because there's two pope, uh, color popes, and they need a color pope to rule, you, even if you're the winning army and your leader dies, you kind of have to follow the other guy. So why go through the whole name change? Uh, mostly because of the reason uh, it's addressed is that uh, during this time, in order to like get an army to support himself, because the main bulk of the world supported Gavin, not Dazzin. So in order for Dazzin to get an army to fight back with, he needed to support a whole bunch of members of ill repertoire, uh, bad people. I can't remember the proper word I'm looking for. But he got a bunch of scums and assholes and pirates to, like, be his army. And he was like, man, even if I win, I have to now allow scum, pirates, and criminals to essentially rule the world, or I immediately throw them under the bus and then have no one who trusts me anymore. So I'm just gonna take over the good guy's army and be one of the good guys now. Uh, and so everyone just, like, kind of buys it and he becomes him. Twist number two, he didn't actually kill Gavin during this fight. What he did was he captured Gavin, threw him in, like, a chest, brought him back to the Cromaria, which is, like, the capital where the Pope lives, and then built a very special dungeon purely out of blue lugs and, and threw him down there, and he's like, this is where you live now. If you can figure out how to break out, you get to be free. So now we have Gavin, Kip's actual father, trapped in a prison below the Cromaria, while Dazen, who's pretending to be Gavin, is raising Kip as his own son. <laughs> Following along so far? <laughs> yes. I think so. Is Gavin Dazen bad? Maybe. It's, okay. okay. It's very heavily fluctuates back and forth between the two. I'm just going to call him Gadazen from now. Gadazen, sure. Um, so now we have several chapters from the point of view of Gavin, who's currently trapped in the prison beneath the ground. I'm assuming there's not a lot in his chapters. Not a lot. It's a lot of him slowly going insane, talking to uh, an imagined figure who lives in the walls outside his prison. Gadazin? Uh It's himself. And so while he's talking to himself in the mirror, essentially... To Gazin. He decides, if Dazin's gonna steal my name and become Gavin, I'm gonna steal Dazin's name and become Dazin. Oh my god. So now we have Gavin pretending to be Dazin while trapped in a prison cell, <laughs> and Dazin pretending to be Gavin as the Pope. <laughs> So Gadazin's bad, but DeGavin is good. But now he's bad? <laughs> but now he's bad. Uh, so the entire time he's living in this prison, he's slowly going insane because the only color you can see is blue. So that's warping his personality. He's becoming hyper-rational. He decides that in order to break out, he needs to create a bomb. So he needs to be able to draft both red and uh, sub-red in order to create the fuel and the spark to create the fire. Uh, and that's how he's going to blow his way up. And he has a really complicated plan, and essentially his plan is he creates a bowl out of his own hair, because if he bleeds onto the floor, it immediately gets le leached up by the floor and loses all its color. So he creates a bowl of his own hair over the course of many months, fills it with his blood so that he can create, uh, or have a source of red to look at to draft red, and then makes himself very sick and gives himself a fever so that he can leach his own heat to create a fire, and then creates a bomb and explodes, and that's how he breaks out of the prison. But we'll get back to that. I mean, that, that's a pretty cool way of going about that. Uh, so, 
now we get back to uh, Gavin slash Dazen raising Kip. Gadavin. Yes, Gadavin. Um, Gadavin's like, you know what? First thing I got to know, Kip, how talented you are. When we get back to Chromaria, I'm putting you through the threshing. It's going to be a whole experience. Uh, and That doesn't sound fun. Kip's like, what's yeah, that? painful. Kip's like, what's the threshing? And Gadavin's like, don't worry about it. You're going to do it. And Kip's like, okay. And then Gadavin's like, also, by the way, a lot of people hate me. And since you're my son, they're going to hate you even more. So be prepared for that. And Kip's like, okay, but what if I wasn't your son? He's like, uh, I'll tell you what. It's your choice whether you want to go by, be known as my son or not. And Kip's like, I don't know. And he's like, how about I just tell everyone you're my nephew? And he's like, how will they know whether I'm your nephew or not? And he's like, because every time they refer to you as my nephew... They'll have that weird inflection on nephew, and everyone will realize they're just being polite and calling you my bastard. It's like, oh, cool. And then several people refer to him as Gavin's nephew, and it's like, oh, yeah, everyone's aware I'm his bastard, but no one's calling attention to it. But it is possible he's his nephew. That is a full possibility. He actually is his nephew, (laughs) which is the best fucking part. So uh, we get to the Chromaria where he decides to be trained, uh, and he goes through the threshing. And essentially what happens is he's brought into a small private room. He's given a whole bunch of tiles of different color and has to organize them based on the shades of the color. And then they're like, wow, you're a super chromat. He's like, yeah, I was called that before. What's it mean? And it's like, it means you're a freak because men aren't supposed to be super chromats. So you're probably the protagonist. So you're probably the protagonist. And he's like, fuck, that sucks. And then uh, the leader of like the guards who protect the Pope come in and they're like, what are you doing? And they're like, you said you wanted us to test him. He's like, yeah, but I said the threshing, not the bullshit little pansy test. And he's like, oh, oh, we have to put him through the threshing? And Kip's like, wait, this wasn't the threshing? He's like, do you feel particularly threshed right now? <laughs> <laughs> now go murder those orphans. So essentially what they do is they trap him in a tunnel, fill the tunnel with water, rats, bugs, uh, and then just drop out the floor of the tunnel. Meanwhile, the entire time they're flashing different colors at him. Uh, and essentially what happens is it's supposed to make him absolutely fucking terrified, so he tries to draft whatever color he has access to. And because he's terrified, his pupils get real dilated. And as they're flashing colors, they can see which colors his eyes respond to. And he's never actually in any danger. It's just a big fucking test. But they, like, try to convince him that it's a big test that he's absolutely going to fail. It ends up being discovered that... Okay, uh, jumping ahead a little bit, it's later discovered that he can draft all of the seven colors. But the Pope, who's up in his private Pope room, sees the results before anyone else. He's like, can't have that. And he immediately, like, cheats and changes the results. So it looks like he can only draft blue and green. They're like, you can draft blue and green, none of the other colors, because I don't want you going through the trouble of being both my son and also a full-spectrum polychrome right now. So he just lies to everyone and tells me he can only draft blue and green. So he's lying about everything. That's my nephew and he only sees two colors. (laughs) Except the time he's lying, he's actually telling the truth whenever he refers to him as his nephew. (laughs) So, now we go back to Kip's home country of Garriston, which is the country he's from, uh, where... Uh, now they have to defend the capital city, which is also called Garriston for... Oh, no, the country's called Tyria. The capital city is called Garriston. They have to protect it from the king, because the king wants to take back the capital, and then start a war with everyone. And so they have this... Is huge... he also up north? No, the... Tyria is actually southeast. Alright, fuck. Rapid fire, end of the book. Gavin does shit that's supposed to be impossible by creating a beautiful magical wall that will protect Garriston for all time. Fucks up the gate. The city is lost. While the city is being lost, uh, they create some barges and all the members of Garrison escape on the barges. And then as they're escaping on the barges, Gavin gets stabbed by a special knife and that's when he loses the ability to see blue. At the same time he loses the ability to see blue, uh, 
Gadazin down in the prison cell. Or sorry, Davin? Davin. DeGavin. DeGavin. DeGavin down in the prison cell manages to break out of the blue prison. And it's highly symbolic because it happens at the exact same time. He loses control of blue. Gadavin breaks out. DeGavin breaks out of prison yeah. of the blue variety. As DeGavin's crawling through the tunnel away from the blue prison, he falls through a trap door and ends up in a prison made entirely of green and immediately realizes, I don't have to break out of one prison, I have to break out of seven fucking prisons. Which is weird, because how do you make a prison out of fucking super violet? I don't know, but we'll get there. So, he's in a green prison. Uh (laughs) It's like I'm not even in a cage! He's in a green prison. Uh, At the same time, the prism has lost the ability to see the color blue and can no longer draft the color blue. And we also find out at the same time at the start of book two, because we're now into book two, get ready for yourselves, uh, that Blue has gone out of control and is now creating huge amounts of power and a Blue Bane has appeared, which is essentially an island made entirely of Blue Luxon, which turns all the Blue drafters around it into color whites of the color Blue. And it's a huge fucking problem. And so they go back there to destroy it. Actually, Gadavin? 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 Is the one in the prison. Yes. And Gudavin is the one pretending to be the prism. Who is the Pope? Okay, the Pope. The Pope <laughs> decides to send all the people who are on the barges to a separate island. He sends Kip back to Cromeria to be trained as one of these royal guards for the Pope. Uh, and then he himself decides to go just destroy the Blue Bane all by himself. He goes, he destroys the Blue Bane. While he's destroying the Blue Bane, he loses the ability to control the color green. At the same time as he loses the ability to control the color green, his brother simultaneously breaks out of the green prison because he's learned a couple tricks along the way. And also, one of the ways that he was making sure that he was incapable of gaining any access to any colors is every day while he was in the green prison, uh, they were dropping him, or blue prison, they were dropping him down blue bread uh, that was dyed to be the exact shade of blue so he couldn't get access to any colors other than blue. No one realized he had escaped from the blue prison at first, so now they were dropping him down blue bread into the green prison, which made it easier for him to escape from the green prison. Once again, it happens simultaneously, very symbolic. Uh, now a green bane has started to become created, and it's just a fucking problem. A whole bunch of shit happens. War starts. Uh, Kip starts playing Nine Kings with uh, Degazin and Gadavin's father, uh, who's just a straight-up son of a bitch. Um, and who has manipulated the entire world to be exactly the way he wants it, and he's kind of an asshole. Uh, we don't learn a lot about Nine Kings, except it's essentially Magic the Gathering. Uh, also, after this book 2 came out, and the author says that it's essentially Magic the Gathering, he also says that his entire color system for the world is based on Magic the Gathering. So that's fun. Um, alright. Keep going. I do love Magic the Gathering, and it's nine manas. Yes, it's nine manas, which includes super violet and sub-red and all that fun stuff. Alright. Kip trains as a black guard, which is the name as the, uh, of the secret guards for the Pope. Uh, we learn that some of the cards are magic and are imbued with the memories of the person who they're based on, because all the cards are based on actual living characters. And so if you touch the magic cards, you get access to the memories of the person who the card's created after. I just imagine someone touching the DeGavin card, and, like, it shows him killing his brother. <laughs> it's like, that's weird. <laughs> kind of happens, actually. <laughs> Not in that exact fashion, but he does find a Gavin card and touches it and find out that Gavin, or Dazen, it's not clear which one, because he sees him as Gavin, but he doesn't know if it's the actual Gavin or if it's the prison Gavin who's actually Dazen, actually drafts black uh, Luxon, and so he doesn't actually create any of the colors himself, he just steals colors from everyone else around him. Fun times. Alright. Gavin comes back after losing the color of green and decides to start a war with this king who has just created problems for him down in the south. 
he then decides to swap places with his brother who he's trapped in the prison. Goes down to the prison to talk with his brother. He's like, I'm going to give you back control of the country. And his brother just starts fucking berating him about how he was not good enough to control the world. At this point, uh, Gadazin also realizes that he's in the yellow prison because he's escaped the blue and the green. He's like, fuck, you're actually pretty talented. And he's like, yeah, and I've gone insane because I've been down here for 15 fucking years. So when I get here, I'm going to murder your son. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what he says. And <laughs> It's like I read these books. I didn't actually. And it's like... And Dazzin and Gavin's just like, all right, cool, in that case. And he just blows out Gavin's fucking brains after deciding to swap places with him. He's just like, nope, you're too crazy. I can't have this. And so he goes back up, goes to war with the Greenbane uh, now, except he brings the entire army along with Kip down to fight the war. And as they're fighting in the war, they kind of lose the battle, but win the war kind of situation. They're escaping away on their ships. Uh, and then uh, Kip sees... Andros, which is Gavin's father, fighting with the Pope. Uh, and the two of them are fighting. And then Kip's like, I have a memory of this from another magic card I touched. Uh, the father is actually a red-white. I have to kill him right now. And so Kip tries to kill him. A weird fight breaks out. Uh, Davin gets stabbed with a special knife and then loses the ability to see any of the colors and can no longer draft. And then he gets thrown overboard and caught by a pirate ship. And he's now a oarsman on a pirate ship. All right, book two done. Book three. <laughs> we might not get through all five books. Now that you mentioned the part where it's like, he very much based this off of Magic the Gathering. Hearing the terms you're using within this is becoming very more clear about where he was going with this. All right, so book three. Uh, there's a character called Taya who was introduced in book two. She was another one of the members of the Royal Guard who was trained alongside Kip. Uh, she is one the first example we see of Peril as a color that can be drafted. So she can see the super invisible color of Peril. She actually gets recruited by a member of the Order of the Broken Eye, which is an order of super-secret assassins who uh, essentially draft peril to make themselves invisible and use that to kill a whole bunch of people in super-secluded places and essentially try to roll, run the world uh, all by themselves. Uh, at the same time as she's being recruited, Andros, who is the father of Gavin and Dazen, uh, also a giant head in space, also a giant head in space, realizes that he uh, also got stabbed with a knife during the weird fight that happened that stole all of Dazen's colors, Gavin, Daz, and Pope, uh, all of his colors, and now Andros is no longer a color white. He still drafts red, but his halo has shrunk, and he's back to being a normal human being. And he's like, you know what I'm going to do with this newfound power? Become the new emperor. And he essentially makes himself Promachos, which is, like, essentially, he's a wartime leader of the entire world, and he's given insane amounts of power that no one else actually has. Uh, also, is this knife obsidian? Uh, no, the knife is actually made out of white Luxon, which is never really adequately explained, but all right. Okay. Um, Shouldn't that give infinite power? <laughs> probably, but that's not the way it works. Uh, it's heavily implied. I haven't actually read the fifth book in the series, so we're actually only going to do the first four books in my recap. But uh, I, it's heavily implied that the knife steals power from some drafters, and then they use it in some sort of ritual to create a new prism instead of having one naturally be born. Okay. So it probably steals colors from a bunch of people, and then they use it to imbue them with new colors. All right. So uh, Andros attempts to try and coerce Kip, into doing his bidding and then he's like if you do this i'll make you the new prism and kip's like all right and then he just kind of does a really shitty job at it and andros is just like cool i retract my offer you're no longer the new prism <laughs> uh this is a part i really want to jump into and take a bit of a moment to talk about because while tay is being recruited into the order of the broken eye we hear they have the weirdest fucking backstory of all goddamn time so they existed before this Prism existed, so back when all the colors were at war with each other, and if one color got too powerful, it just created problems for all the other colors, and there was nothing they could really do about it. 
Uh, and so the order originally existed as a way of essentially doing what the prison does, except instead of fixing the problem by seeing that red's being drafted too much, so they draft blue to bring balance back to the world. Instead, what they did is they saw red's being drafted too much, so they just went and killed a bunch of red drafters to try and bring balance back to the world. And that's how these assassins started. Um, they also believed that anyone who could draft more than one color was an abomination, and so they also just killed people who could draft more than one color as well. Then we find out that a member of this order uh, started experimenting with Black Luxon and went completely fucking batshit insane while drafting Black Luxon. But at the same time, created colored spectacles so that if, say, a green drafter wore these green glasses, he can now see green light wherever he is and he doesn't have to see a specific green source of light. Uh, these become more common throughout the books. This guy went fucking insane from drafting all the Black Luxon and creating spectacles that he just kind of straight up renamed himself to Lucidonius. <laughs> And became the first prism and created the entire monotheistic belief that exists in the world. <laughs> also, I only assume that this glasses concept just came into play so that the villain can wear sunglasses at all times, logically, and not be a dipshit that's wearing them inside. Pretty much. Uh, then it's revealed that uh, all this fucking crazy shit goes down. And then the Order killed off Lucidonius and they're like, hopefully he gets reincarnated in someone else's body. And they create this... Uh, prophecy of the Lightbringer, who will bring balance back to the world by removing Orlaham from it. And that's weird, because the prophecies we know about uh, the Lightbringer is that he's supposedly going to bring Orlaham back into the world because he's just been silent for fucking eons since creating Lucidonius. Which, now we know, he didn't create Lucidonius. Lucidonius went ma mad and created the entire religion himself. Cool. Now we go back to Kip, who at this point finds some magic cards... Uh, that have all the memories, except he finds a massive store of them, and then kind of like almost three stooges slapstick comedy trips and stumbles into them, and comes into contact with all of them at once, and it kills him and stops his heart, and he goes into this weird fever dream where he talks with, to a demon called Abaddon, uh, and has to relive each of the memories one after one, and while he's reliving the memories, the cards get absorbed into a cloak made of human skin that Abaddon is carrying, and using to hide himself in the ethereal realm. I gotta say, this is very different than everything up to this point. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, then Kip is just like, oh. Wait, wait is this a, were they introduced planeswalkers? <laughs> kind of. So Kip goes a little bit insane during this like weird fever dream that he's having while he's dying. And he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to steal your cloak of human skin from you, Abaddon. And everyone's like, no. And then he gets kicked out of the ethereal realm because he no longer has his human skin cloak. And then Kip wakes up and he's just holding a fucking cloak of invisibility. And he's like, cool, this is mine now, I guess. Except all the cards are gone because they were absorbed into his skin. Uh, <laughs> I really hope there's a situation later where like one of the ultraviolet people can see this cloak. And it's like, why the fuck are you wearing that? No, but the peril people can absolutely see the cloak. It's like, why are you wearing people? Uh, a whole I bunch think the peril people don't care. A whole bunch of shit goes down. Uh, Andros, who is the new emperor, uh, declares... Kip a... No, uh, Andros is in a meeting while Kip's half-brother, who is also the son of actually Gavin and not Dazen... Is uh, he na also named Kip, though? No, his name is Zyman, because fuck naming conventions. <laughs> or Pick. <laughs> it's so, Kip and Pick. So Zyman uh, gets named the new Prism Elect and immediately decides to declare Kip an enemy of state and tells everyone to murder him. War goes down to the street. Kip escapes on a boat. Uh, and then we find out that Grinwoody, who is actually Andros's servant was the leader of the order of the broken eye all along and he's also the uncle of the leader of the royal guards who protect the pope and a whole bunch of weird shit happens and then we have a whole bunch of shit happens 
Gavin escapes from the prison boat that he was captured on at the beginning of this book, makes his way back to Cormaria, gets knocked unconscious, and wakes up in the blue prison. Book four! <laughs> <laughs> All right. Book four starts off with a lot of graphic sex talk because Kip has married himself off to someone for political reasons to try and bring power back to the region. But he can't actually fuck her to consummate the marriage because she has a very small vagina. It's just a huge part of this book is her having a very small vagina and then not being able to consummate their marriage. <laughs> like, there's a lot of talk about how they're going to be murdered when they make it to her hometown because they've been unable to consummate the marriage and everyone will know. <laughs> I don't know why it's such a big part of this book, but it wasn't is. Kip in a blue prison. No, Gavin's in a blue prison. The 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 Pope is in a blue prison right now. Alright. Okay. So, Gavin is trapped in his own blue prison, uh, which he created himself to try and trap his brother. And the only problem is he's gone fully colorblind, so he can't draft any of the colors while in his prison, so he can't escape using magic. He Because he created the prison, though, he knows all the weak points of the prison. He actually manages to find a way to escape. When he gets to the yellow prison, he expects to find his own brother dead there. And instead, he's uh, racked with memories of the fact that he actually did kill his brother all those years ago. Didn't capture him and bring him back to the Cormaria. Just went a little bit insane because he was the one who was drafting Black Lugs. And the Black Lugs made him go insane. Created this prison underneath for his own sins to be contained. Uh, and then just... I was getting a feeling that this prison was a mental thing. Yeah, and then... Uh, so the prison's very real, but he created it himself. And then his father trapped him in itself. Regardless... He realizes he's now trapped in his own prison and his brother never wait, actually wait, was in Wait, wait, wait a second, though. If he's trapped in his own prison that he made and he's in a blue thing, how is he doing that if he's colorblind? I don't... I don't know. I don't know. Um, so, he starts to draft Black Lugson while he's down there because even though he's colorblind, he can still draft Black Lugson. And it makes him go even more insane. It's a whole fucking thing. Uh, at the same time, uh, Taya, who was brought into the Order of the Broken Eye... Uh, starts being trained as like a master assassin, but also is like, I have to keep ties to the good world and also the evil world because I need to support them so I can find out more secrets about them so that I can eventually destroy them from the inside out. But at the same time, I don't want to be too clear about the fact that I'm still supporting the good guys, so... I'm going to kill some people. I'm going to kill some people, but not everybody. And at the same time, before she joined the Order of the Broken Eye, uh, she started working as a spy for the White from the first book. Uh, and... Her first target as an assassin is to kill the spy master, who is the only person who knew she, who she was uh, legitimate. And she's like, oh god, I can't do this. Uh, it's alright, the white will still know that I'm good. And then the white gets fucking murdered off as she's killing off the spy master. And she's like, oh no, nobody knows who I am anymore. I'm just a bad person now. <laughs> At the same time. Or a double agent that can't be proven. Gadazin, who has been... Uh, his girlfriend from the first book, who got real mad about the fact that Kip existed, has now been elected to take the place of the White and is now the new leader of the religion. And it's just her learning how to, like, balance all these fucking responsibilities. Meanwhile, Kip goes to war and starts fighting on the front lines against this evil king from the south. And then it ends with him winning a particular battle, and now he's being hailed by all of his friends as the Lightbringer. And we end right there as Gavin makes it into the... Uh, orange? Yeah, he's into the orange prison at the end of the fourth book. That is as far as I've made it. Now you understand everything there is to know about the Lightbringer series. No questions, I assume. That was a very cohesion story, right? <laughs> I mean, I asked most of my questions while we were going through. Yeah. Is this only supposed to be five books? Yes. Yeah, so the final book is out. The series is complete. I just have not had a chance to read it because it came out like two months ago. So one for every magic color. Unlike what? the colors in the story. <laughs> 
See, five is a significant color, seven is a significant color, nine and eleven should be significant colors, but they're not acknowledged in the slightest. So, once again, I'm impressed by your ability to bring something to the table that is completely insane, but also at the same time is completely enthralling to me and I want to experience it for myself. Oh, it feels like a fucking fever dream looking back on it. Like, while I'm reading, I'm like, this is great. The writing's all right. Like, as I said, the Night Angel had this really weird fucking ending that seems to have cut down a lot of the buildup they had over the first couple of books. But the series as a whole was really good. But actually going back and thinking about all the shit that happens and just trying to do a speedy recap so we can actually release this as a podcast and not a new web series. (laughs) Uh, Oh, God, it feels like a fucking fever dream. Also, um... To just, I forgot about the actual final scene of the fourth book. Uh, they resolve that graphic sex issue from the beginning uh, by learning. She essentially learned how to stretch her vagina out so that now they can actually make sweet, tender love and consummate their marriage. But uh, this happens right in the book, right after Taya, the girl who has been infiltrated in the Order of the Broken Eye, realizes that her only way of getting truly free is finding Kip, who she now admits that she loves and wants to be with forever. And she's like, so long as he hasn't consummated his marriage yet, I can still be with him forever. And then the next chapter is him being like, oh, we figured out how to fuck. Let's consummate this marriage right here and now. Yeah, do it, do it, do it now. Oh my God. (laughs) A lot of weird, interesting turns. Uh, The one thing that's worrying is actually the fact that for our special episodes, you and me, Peter, we immediately go into insanity. Yeah. 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 I'm a bit concerned about what Matt's going to bring to the table. (laughs) It's being amplified, you gotta take it even further. Yeah, I'm getting the feeling that I'm kind of being forced to change my chosen topic right now, but... <laughs> Don't feel like you have to change anything about yourself we'll see, for us. We'll see. Yeah, I think I asked most of my questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Alright, Peter Game Time, I'm gonna give you some dumb names and you're gonna guess which book they're from. Oh no. Oh no. <sighs> I'm not actually gonna do that, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> well, we just had to look at the ones, if they're in Latin, it's one of them, if they're in Greek, it's the other one. Exactly. If they just make no goddamn sense, they're in the first one we talked about. Like Logan Geyer. Which can I, which book would you guess that name's from? That's probably the first, first one. First one. First one, absolutely. Koyos. Second. Second. Second, absolutely. See, you got the name. <laughs> perfectly. There's no game to be had here. All right. That's too good. So, thank you for listening to our podcast. <laughs> oh, I feel like I need to take a nap. Our podcast can be found on all major podcasting services. Uh, make sure you turn tune in in a fortnight to f- hear our next episode of our podcast. Also, be sure to check us out on all of our social medias. We're now on Instagram and YouTube. You can watch a video version of this, which is mostly just the audio over a YouTube video. Which isn't actually a video, just a picture. Yeah. All right. Last but not least, make sure you email us. Uh, make sure you like, comment, and subscribe to the podcast. All those things are really helpful. Did anyone happen to guess the episode correctly? Oh, that's a good point. Did anyone actually guess this episode correctly honestly i'd be more impressed and worried if someone did (laughs) not yet there's still time you have until this episode actually comes out to guess it if you guess it by then i'll be very proud of you and you'll get a shout out at the beginning of the next episode that's fair no one's gonna get it no one's going to get it i'll be very proud (laughs) and also a little bit disappointed so if you really liked this podcast uh why don't you even uh toss a coin from the valley of plenty is that a reference or something no what are you talking about Which reference? Fuck.
So essentially, his immortality is powered by orphan blood. 